Hey everyone, it's Michael. For this episode, I interviewed a good friend of mine, Jackie Bauer. Jackie currently lives in Tucson, Arizona, although I met her in Bloomington, Indiana when I was a PhD student at Indiana University. And when she was working at the workshop in political theory and policy analysis for my PhD advisor, Lynn Ostrom. Jackie later moved from that position to be the sustainability director for the city of Bloomington, Indiana. And since leaving government, Jackie has founded Rent Lab, an organization that works with cities to improve outcomes in rental housing by addressing what Jackie refers to as the split incentive problem. Sometimes when I hear the word incentive, I'm reminded of the times I've heard some economists say that as economists, they think that incentives are important because they affect motivations and behavior. I really think we all think that. And as this example demonstrates, it can be really tricky to align individual incentives with the public good. We also talked about Jackie's experiences and perspectives on academia, government, and now the private sector. This is the Finding Sustainability Podcast. How are you doing? I have found the last three months to be the most thought-provoking three months, perhaps, of my life. Wow. And it just keeps compounding. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but there's so much going on, and it seems like between the pandemic and now the protests and demands for racial justice are illustrating how vulnerable and how lopsided the world has been. Mm. So I'm trying to think about, and I'm sort of not answering your question about how am I, I'm- You kind of uh, are, you're doing a better job than I would be if you asked me that question. (laughs) I, I am doing really well. I'm finding this really mentally challenging to figure out, you know, in some ways as a sustainability professional, what's happening now is at the core of everything we all are saying all the time, which is that we need to be better prepared and more resilient to all kinds of different changes. And we need to be thinking about equity. It needs to be at the forefront of everything we do. And uh, the world, it turns out, is is just gonna smack us upside the head with that right now. Yeah. I mean, the emphasis on, I don't know if you said fragility or lack of, or vulnerability, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, that hit me. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's being exhibited in multiple ways. And it's funny that you don't, I mean, I, as an academic, it's kind of strange to actually see the concepts that you bat around in PDFs actually signify something in the world the way you kind of expect them to. But it turns out it's hard to tell when you're not resilient if the, the vulnerabilities in your system are not salient to you. Right, right. And they're becoming, I think, increasingly salient to more and more people. So suddenly, a lot of us who've been really insulated from all kinds of vulnerabilities are either experiencing them ourselves or having to acknowledge that we're surrounded by people who are incredibly um incredibly more vulnerable than we are to 
disruptions and shocks. And, you know, I mean, I feel like the first wave was the, the pandemic where it became so clear that there's all these people that are kind of living on the bubble and right. who don't have access to healthcare. And obviously the racial injustices of that were already pretty clear um, in how it was affecting communities of color. And then to have the, I mean, I think the, the murder of George Floyd was just a spark, you know, in the tinder, you know, it, it just completely set the flame of, of a really people who were in, in incredible, a feeling of incredible sort of vulnerability and understandable anger and every, anyway, it was like a tinderbox. And so, yeah, it was all there. So the second wave is now just completely driving home that there's so much inequity and so much that we are failing at. Yeah. And what that's done for me is make me, you know, I felt like I was fair, I was pretty aware of racial injustice and had a pretty good understanding of how poorly we've handled race relations in this country and beyond. But um, what the incidents of the last two weeks have done is make me intentionally seek out more information because, and I'm finding out that I'm really poorly informed in so many ways. And so, I mean, it's, and I get the sense that everybody, everybody is doing the same thing. Every white person. I shouldn't say every, many, many more white people are intentionally engaging in educating themselves on race yeah. uh, than, than has perhaps in recent memory, you know, happened. So. Yeah. One thing I, you mentioned, I, Jackie, too, is uh, try, to admit, try to limit how much you bop around. Oh. I know it's a, it's a great feature in every other instance in life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but sorry. right, right the, now, it, it creates extra sound for the mic. The noise. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. Um, this chair is also squeaky, which doesn't help. That I haven't heard. Oh, you haven't? Oh, oh. So it's more of I don't think the, so. More the touching the desk, et cetera. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's um, I mean, maybe we should make more time for it, right? I mean, this is, it's kind of like, if not now, when? Because so much of the... So much of what we heard is that this is, this is not new, that this mm -hmm. has happened many, 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 many times. Right. I mean, getting back, and I think there's a tendency, there is a tendency for a lot of folks to want to feel like, well, no, this is a thing of the past. Right. We're kind of beyond this now. And I remember, um, so I've led this uh, foreign study program in South Africa. I lead half of it that's in South Africa. And we go to the apartheid museum every year and it affects me every year to go there. And it took a process for me to kind of, um, not socially distance myself from it because this was okay this is another country and in the past mm -hmm. right. and right so we're now post-apartheid but of course you go around South Africa uh, you're not you're not exactly post-apartheid like the legacies are just like deeply entrenched there's sure a lot of punishing aspects to <laughs> I mean it's just it's very clear that the country is not just like recovered from that and it's been since I, I learned about all that, because I didn't actually know a lot about it um, before I started to lead the program and, and read up on the history. 
And then, you know, I go back to my country and I have to be like, I had to kind of go through my own process of, oh my God, like this is where I not post this in my own country. Mm-hmm. And really all of these things that I was shocked by in South Africa, like we, we have those same things. Yeah. Well, and in some ways, perhaps I've never been to South Africa, but in some ways I feel like South Africa may be more honest with itself about mm. those legacies and and we so intentionally try to just like you said pretend they're in the past yeah i just i get i don't yeah i don't want to be polemical maybe we with time to but it just feels like we just we we hide behind buying shit like that's basically what we do like we don't have like malls are our churches a lot of the time and so we uh-huh. just go on a saturday to a church our mall church and we buy some stuff Mm -hmm. and like that's that's our social space is oriented around purchasing disposable goods and like that's what we all like that's our social engagement yeah well this sort of loops this whole conversation around you know sustainability the whole principle of sustainability is social equity economic and environmental and all of this, you know, all of these issues tie so neatly into that sustainability lens. So the consumption as a way of, you know, feeling like we're accomplishing something or pretending that life is about, you know, the stuff you own. And and combined with, you know, I think about I'm vegetarian and I think a lot about, I mean, the, there's environmental components to that, but there's also a cruelty aspect to it, right? The way we treat animals. Mm. And I think the way we've, you know, the way we've devalued animal life, it, it, it extends into all these other components, all these other, other areas of life. And, and I, you know, I can't comment very intelligently right now on, how that relates to racial injustice, but there's something about the way we view life in many contexts and whether that's the lives of people of color or animals or the environment. I mean, isn't it? Yeah, sorry. You know, so we're, I think we have enabled ourselves to devalue life and value and resources and everything in, in so many different ways. And that's manifesting in a lot of very painful manners right now. Yeah, I mean, is it, I mean it just feels like it's the, the same machine that devalues animal life, devalues human life in the state of the environment. I was listening to this podcast. It's a spinoff of uh, Marketplace, I think. It's called like a history of now. But so they went and interviewed um, a black man who works on a chicken farm it's not a farm, of course, right? It's a big chicken factory thing. And he gets paid to collect chickens. And it's just the most brutal sounding job. Then he has to like dip his knuckles in vinegar every night to like keep them from becoming bruised and warped. And they get paid like per thousand chickens or something. And then they have to do like thousands and thousands of chickens a day to make like not quite a living wage. Mm-hmm. And like that's dehuman, like that's de-animalizing and dehumanizing like everything at once. Yeah. It's just this big, gruesome package. And I feel like people get frustrated because it does feel like it's this big, self-reinforcing machine. Mm-hmm. 
it's a, it's, it feels like both a helpful metaphor, but a challenging metaphor because how do you disrupt a machine? Like it's, it's just, it's mm -hmm. very, it's just got its tendrils everywhere. Well, it, it was ironic to me, eye-opening to me that there were so many outbreaks in meatpacking plants where yeah. we've so brutally devalued animal life and in the process of trying to brutally process or brutally um, manufacture as much meat as possible, we're putting human beings shoulder to shoulder in the middle of a pandemic, you know, because it is so important to us to have cheap meat and right. eat as much meat as cheaply as possible. When we want it. When we want it. And not sort of making that connection that we've, I mean, there's a, there's a whole industry of people who I think end up feeling dehumanized themselves because of the way they have to treat the animals. It, it's, I mean, anyway, yeah, right. I, it's, this is all super vague and, but to me, there, all these things end up being linked where we're devaluing all of these, these valuable things and it, and it is manifesting itself in, in so many different ways. And I think I'd like to think, you know, um, I like to anthropomorphize earth as having a sense of justice and, and, you know, maybe really needing to smack some sense into the human race because we're doing a really shitty job. Yeah. So, and, you know, to kind of tie this, I am in the process of trying to tie all this back to my work, mm -hmm. which, you know, because I work in sustainability and because racial and social equity and all that stuff has been part of that conversation for a long time. And, and it's something that the sustainability field has been struggling with overtly for a long time. You know, it, it, I think I have less of a leap than some people sure. uh, have to make, but I am still trying to process these things into the sort of day to day of what I'm trying to do. You know, I have a startup, a startup that's focused on, affordability and sustainability in housing with housing and vulnerability and social equity. And, you know, so all of these things tie so nicely together in housing and in all of the issues that we're trying to kind of wrestle with right now. So that's kind of where my brain is right now, mm -hmm. trying to figure out how do we do that better? And, and, you know, we're trying to get started in the first place. So we've got a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of hurdles to jump over just to get up and running as a business. Mm. So that said, you know, the whole goal behind the company is called Rent Lab. We are focused entirely on efficiency, sustainability, and affordability in rental housing. And this is a chronic very difficult sector to actually improve in terms of sustainability. And I'm using sustainability in the broadest sense, economic, environmental, and social equity. So there's something, well, there's many reasons that the rental sector is, is really, really hard to tackle, to make better in terms of efficiency and affordability. But one of the sort of key reasons that it's so complicated is something called the split incentive problem. And effectively, 
there's no way in rental properties to get the market incentives to align so that landlords will make the investments we want them to make in the property and tenants will also behave efficiently and conservatively in the property. So conservatively, meaning not in the political sense, in the use of resources sense. So, right. so you can end up, depending on who pays the utility bills, you can have better buildings or you can have better behavior, but you cannot have both in the rental sector. Right, because if you have an inefficient building, the landlord does not have an incentive to increase that efficiency because they don't pay for the utility, if they don't pay for the utility bill. Exactly, exactly. But if the landlords pay the utilities, they have an incentive to make the building more efficient, but the tenants then have no incentive to conserve. Got so it. they might run the heat with the windows open or turn the AC down to 60 degrees in the middle of the summer or whatever. So- Got it. There's, and it's interesting, I've been building this kind of resource library on the website for our potential clients and finding research papers done 40 years ago or 50 years ago that talk about the split incentive. The language is the same, the challenges are the same, the proposed solutions are mostly the same. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's something that hasn't, progressed in decades and so that's what we're trying to tackle so to my knowledge there's no other company out there that's solely focused on trying to tackle these issues in rental housing you know mm -hmm. there's people working on energy efficiency affordability sustainability um but we are really trying to narrow our focus on building that in rental housing specifically. So um, this is, it's cities. So my clients are cities. Got it. At least in this initial phase. And they are, I mean, there's a couple of reasons that cities are, are really interested in this. One is that many, many cities have climate action plans or sustainability plans that they are, you know, where they're trying to make some, really ambitious targets in terms of carbon reduction and, and overall sustainability. So that's one reason. They, most cities have at least 50% rental housing. Mm -hmm. And so if they can't tackle rental housing, they can't hit their targets. There's no way they can actually make those goals. And then the second reason is that cities are becoming increasingly unaffordable and housing is becoming increasingly un, inaccessible for certain kind of essential roles. So it's hard, it's harder and harder for a teacher or a fire, a fireman or a postal worker or whatever to actually live in the cities that they serve because they can't afford to live there. Right. So there's all of these sort of compounding reasons that cities um, are feeling more and more compelled to actually look at, at rental housing and trying to figure out some long-term solutions. So that's what we're, that's what we're focused on. Okay. So you would get a contract from a city to try to work with them to improve the efficiency of rental housing, essentially. Yeah. And the way we do it, you know, we're really trying to tackle it through transparency. I mean, there's a lot of tools that we really have to bring to bear on this, but transparency and accountability are, are some of the key things we're trying to kind of bring into the marketplace. So 
we are focused on making it clearer and more transparent what the full cost of housing actually is. So we want people to look at the cost of utilities, the cost of transportation, and actually look at the full range of all of those expenses. And that both gives tenants, you know, it makes tenants more better informed. It puts them in a better position to sort of make decisions that align with their budgets, but it also creates visibility around which properties are actually the most inefficient. So if we can show that the, the, the um, average per bedroom electric bill is $30 for the whole community, the people who pay $70 or $100 per bedroom are going to start asking some questions. And so right. we're, you know, the platform we use creates, you know, we actually have visuals around which properties are the most and least efficient. And we're really focusing on, for especially in the beginning, celebrating the, the properties that are doing the best. You know, the properties that are really, they are the most efficient per bedroom or the least cost per bedroom. Um, so, you know, transparency is a big part of it, but, and that the platform is, is really geared toward landlords and tenants so they can see comparison, but it's really hard to build interest among those populations. So that's our long-term goal is to build a good enough data set and good enough tools that those populations start to expect to have that information when they're making decisions. So the immediate target is, is really cities where we're trying to give cities a better picture of their own rental sector mm -hmm. so that they can develop programs, have incentives, you know, actually try to identify which parts of their rental sector are doing well and which are doing poorly. And, and they can actually start to tackle those okay. now as we're working in the long term to sort of build interest in these other populations. Okay. So you, you work to construct these data sets for the city that you might be working with? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And some cities have amazing data. Mm. You will not be surprised to hear that they are rare. So uh, most of the cities that we're working with, so city, the city of Flagstaff is our client. They have terrible data. They have very little data on the rental properties that exist in the community. They have very little information about things like square footage and how many bedrooms there are, all that kind of stuff. So even really basic information is really hard to get in Flagstaff. The other community, and we have one other pilot community um, who is, has basically been working with us since the beginning of this whole project, and that's Columbia, Missouri. They have amazing data. And they have detailed data on every rental in the city. They actually have made public the utility usage in, um, in, uh, in terms of water and electricity because the city owns those utilities. So they have amazing data that is, we're using to sort of understand some of the patterns that we expect to see in some of the other cities mm -hmm. where we work. So Columbia is one of those rare cases where we actually have amazing information. So we are at the point of trying to, to get a few more cities onto the platform. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, Flagstaff and Columbia demonstrate the, the edges of the types of data we expect to have. Flagstaff is an example of a city where they have almost nothing. Columbia is an example of a city 
where we have lots of information. And I think most cities are going to fall in between those two. So is this on a website, Jackie, like rentlab.com? It's .org. .org. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We are, we're, so we're for profit, but we are something called a benefit corporation, which okay. means we have a social mission written into our founding documents. So uh, our social mission holds as much weight as our profit mission. Got it. Reminds me of the triple bottom line idea. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And it was really important to me, you know, this started and I don't remember if you know this, this started as a project when I worked for the city of Bloomington. I didn't know this. Yeah. So I was the sustainability coordinator for the city of Bloomington, Indiana for seven and a half years. And I, this, the rent lab project started as a multi-city grant when I was still at the city. And so this was a, this problem of split incentives and this problem of promoting efficiency and affordability in rental housing has is widespread you know so we easily recruited 10 other cities to kind of work with us on trying to figure out what tools might look like to help make that sector better uh, but it was always pretty clear that it wasn't going to stay at the city it i assumed for the longest time that it was just going to be a nonprofit organization but when I learned and, and when social benefit corporations became a, a thing, they, you know, city or um, states started adopting social benefit sort of corporate structures, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, okay. years ago something like that. And uh, so when I learned about that, I was like, this is the perfect kind of merger of those two, of those two things. So we want to be a company. We want to be for profit because it gives us a lot of flexibility in how we recruit, how we get funding. Mm -hmm. um, but it was really important to me that the social mission be ingrained in the, the corporation. Mm. And so when you say we, Jackie, who are you working with? So it's funny for a long time, we usually meant me trying to sound like more people. Uh, and I did, ha I have been working with city partners and with, uh, colleagues for a long time, but I was the primary driver, but I now have a CTO, a chief technology officer, uh, who's, who's just signed on in the last couple of months. I have a data, lead data scientist who leads all of the, the data analysis and kind of figuring out what tools and what, what kinds of analyses we can do, even in cities that don't have great data. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a, a former colleague who really works primarily as an advisor, but sort of as a, he is who I lean on. So I actually have a team now, which is really exciting. That and is cool. Yeah. So we is real now. Okay. Before it was pretend. And once in a while, do you recruit Tom Evans? Every once in a while, yes, Every once in a while. yes, yeah. He helped. He um, primarily at this point, it's more to bounce ideas around. But yeah, mm. his GIS skills could actually be. I was wondering. Yeah, he had no. We haven't done it. We haven't really worked on that yet. Um, he, I think, in some ways, he wants to make sure it's clear that it's my thing. Yeah, I guess I should tell listeners also that Tom Evans is uh, AKA your husband. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Who's right. a geography professor at University of Arizona. 
Yeah. And, and a former Jack. member of my PhD committee and just, yeah. All around all good guy. Around, all around okay guy. Okay guy, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I, I actually would, there are some things we're trying to tackle now that where Tom's um, skills are becoming increasingly appealing. Okay. I mean, so how long, I've, you've been in Tucson now for two years, three years? What is it? Yeah, just over two. Okay. So other than being hotter, so I, yeah, I, I met you in Bloomington, full transparency when I was a PhD student there. You were working at the workshop in political theory and policy analysis where I was a student. Yep. And then while I was still there, you went to work for the city of Bloomington as their sustainability director. Yep. That's what I remember. Yep. That's but, all But correct. I'm getting older, so I don't trust things as much. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, how is your life different now than when it was, I mean, so you're now in like the startup world before you were in government world, government land. Um, other than it being hotter in Tucson than in Bloomington, like how is life different? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. It's been really, so my background before what I'm doing now was government, like you said. I also worked in a nonprofit for many years and of course worked in academics for several years. And so this is my first foray into the private sector, mm. which is interesting in and of itself, but to also be my first foray into like entrepreneurship and, and the startup world is, has been incredibly educational and eye opening, And I, I love it. You know, you do. Okay. I do, I do. Well, and it's been really interesting because there's sort of, I don't want to say competing. There's a couple of different approaches, I think, to entrepreneurship. There's probably many, many approaches. But to me, there's sort of two schools of thought. One is this kind of cutthroat, compete, win no matter what, you know, talk yourself up, like self-promotion, that side of things. Mm -hmm. And then there's another side of it that, which is really focused on collaboration and building each other up and support and how do we together sort of build an ecosystem where innovation and collaboration are celebrated and, and supported. And, um, and it won't surprise you to that, that I gravitate toward the former. I really love that cutthroat, like <laughs> shitty self-promotion side. I've been worried about you for a long time, Jackie. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But no, once I sort of found that there were these two distinct schools of thought in my mind in the entrepreneurship world, and I could recognize the people who were more about the compete no matter what, you know, talk, your, talk about yourself all the time and, you know, to the expense of others, like that's all, it's all about you. I mean, I will say these distinctions sound familiar to me. May, yeah, sure. I'm sure. And in most worlds, that's probably true. But yeah, I can absolutely see that in academics, too. Yeah. I don't know if that's what you're referencing. But, it might have been. Um, but I maybe, and, and I can't, I guess I need to think through this more, but I think the difference between it happening in academics and it happening in the, the world of entrepreneurship is that in entrepreneurship, there's a, people celebrate it. Mm. And a, a certain type of person celebrates it. Right. And there are certain, you know, as you're getting, uh, trying to get venture capital, trying to get into technology incubators, you know, whatever the support might be that you want, there are certain avenues or certain, certain 
companies or, or partners you might affiliate with that want to see that cutthroat scrappiness. Like there's all these sort of euphemisms for being shitty, you know? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, so they're like, we want to see you're scrappy and some that not always, but sometimes that just means you're willing to kind of step on people and do whatever you need to do to get what you want. Right. And that, yeah. And that's just not a, that's just not a vibe I'm excited about. I mean, like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, like the people who you know most in the right. sort of startup to massive success world kind of embody in my mind that way of thinking mm -hmm. and if you watch like silicon valley i had to stop watching it because I was oh did like, you I can't, I can't take it like this just personifies the shitty side of entrepreneurship and i just didn't that's not what i want but it was exciting to me and even early on you know i think i was exposed to a few people who were of the former of this sort of competitive mindset. And when I started to discover the people who were in this other, the collective side of things, you know, this is about a collective, this is about us all um, sort of up leveling together, all of that, you know, I was really excited. And so I think once you can kind of find your people in this world, mm. it's, it's really great. And I've, you know, I've connected with support organizations here and connected with mentors and, all these people that have been incredibly giving of time and advice and, and helping me sort of shift my thinking. There's so many things I wish I had known when I was still at the city working on this project. Uh, I wish I had known before, you know, but it took me a couple of years after getting out of city government to just start thinking a little bit differently about how we can be effective in the world of sustainability broadly but also about how i can be effective in what i'm trying to do yeah i mean in terms thinking back about the relationship between you know city work and and the entrepreneurship space i mean has being in both of those spaces influenced your opinion on what governments can do versus what they need help with by the private sector i mean i i what i guess has what strikes me the most is more the sort of philosophies and strategies for being effective. I, it, less so what sectors or what specific pro types of projects or programs. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm sure I could think through that and, you know, and comment on that too, but I more think about how, you know, there's so much in government where we're, um, internally deciding what the direction should be and fully fleshing out that thing and then bringing it to the community and saying, ta-da, here you are, you know, we did it. And mm -hmm. the community being like, well, we don't want this. It doesn't make sense to us. You know, what the hell were you, <laughs> why were you doing that? And, you know, there's much more of an attitude in the startup world where you sort of take a an idea to its first step and try to get some validation at that very first step mm. and it's actually what people want and need and will respond to before you like spend all this money to take it to its conclusion and i think that government could just benefit immensely from that and and there are some cities and some you know people who are absolutely doing that 
you know, they are mm. starting to adopt some of those ideas, but I don't think it's widespread yet. And I mean, having come from a government position where I feel like I spent the first six months scared to death that I was going to say something dumb that would get picked up in the media where people would be like, dumbass, Jackie Bauer said this. <laughs> and uh, so there's so much pressure in government not to like right. screw up. You have this different set of uh, people you have to answer to, you know, and taxpayers, people who think government is terrible no matter what. Uh, people who have, you know, may want you to be more, you know, want you to be more extreme in one direction or the other. You know, there's all this scrutiny. And so there is a lot of pressure to sort of develop your thing and then have it all finished and then reveal it to the public. And in fact, like that's a terrible way to do things because you can spend a lot of money, you know, fleshing that thing out completely and then finding out that nobody wants it or it's going to use it right i mean it reminds so, me of this yeah sorry go ahead well and i was just going to say so having to like learn and sort of learn um figuring out that there are these other tools and strategies for um effectively like lying a little bit about what you're able to do at a given point which sounds kind of crazy like you can no, i like this going into the private sector has taught you the importance of lying that's the summary. importance of lying uh, um no you i mean there's that expression like fake it till you make it kind of thing and in the yeah. in some contexts i mean what you're doing sometimes is sort of putting this advertisement up on social media that's like you know contact us and we'll do whatever we can um make all your back pain go away and maybe you can't actually do it yet but you have a thought on what you have a thought on how you might do it you haven't really developed it yet but what you want to see is if there's a market for it or if there's interest in it and so what you're doing like by floating that ad out there is just seeing if there's any uptake right and even though like to me that's lying right but the idea is you're trying to get feedback on the idea before you ever spend a lot of money doing it and so you know sometimes that means you're standing up like a home page that's literally just a facade of a business just to see if people will respond and right. isn't that weird like and i don't know i feel like academics may somewhat be the same too there's not a whole lot of support of like i mean you're also not as much focused on marketing or mar focused on like sort of making a business case you're you're focused on yeah most of us aren't some academics are acutely aware of marketing, I think, and you notice the difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, but most, most aren't, I would say. Yeah, it's not yeah. part of our, we're not selected for that mm -hmm. at yeah, any stage. I mean, the, to some extent, or at least in the ideal scenario, you know, academics are focused on finding the truth. Science is focused on finding the truth. And in, and in business, you know, you're, and this is, you know, this is where a lack of a kind of check on, why you're doing something it can be really dangerous in the private sector because some people are utterly focused on what they get buy-in on whether right. it's a good thing or a bad thing right and so that's where scrappiness to me can backfire just incredibly and i think we're seeing that to some extent right now in terms of social media having to kind of come to jesus about how they failed to anticipate other platforms could be completely misused. Yeah. So one of the things, so there's this idea in the startup 
world called called the lean canvas. It's just a super simple way of developing a business model or business plan without writing a 50 page business plan. And the idea is to just really clearly articulate who your audience is, what your value proposition is, you know, what's the unique value you bring to the market, um, who your stakeholders, partners, whatever, you know, where the funding is going to come from. And so it's just like a one page thing that sort of spells out all of these really core fundamentals of the business. The thing that I added to it that no one has ever paid any attention to, but I added it for myself was the public good. To me, mm. it should be overtly acknowledged in the business plan what the actual good is that you're doing. Mm. It's kind of like and the value proposition, but broader. Yeah, and and um, I mean, because you can, like, there's a scenario where the American Nazi party lacks the social media platform that they need to communicate effectively with each other. So you have a great value proposition to the American Nazi party, but is that a value proposition that anyone should pursue? Right. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like yeah. there's not enough of a check right now. And that's exactly why we're in this kind of quagmire that we're in where we've been so focused. Those platforms have been so focused on, responding so effectively to everyone's wants and needs that they didn't take a step back and think, oh, this can be completely manipulated so that false information spreads like wildfire. Uh, people who have sort of the worst instincts in the world can yeah. find all the information they could possibly want about their worst instincts in the world. So, yeah. you know, there was not this sort of next phase thinking about, what, how what we're doing could have a really bad effect on the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, I feel like in a way, Jackie, this would be a good like case study in kind of governance 101. I mean, you're highlighting really important strengths and weaknesses of different sectors, right? So gov government is <laughs> traditionally seen a lot of the times as not being very flexible. Bureaucracy is known to eat a lot of paper, but not necessarily be very adaptive. Right. And so when I hear you talk about the need to be um, more vulnerable and be able, willing to expose kind of half-baked ideas, to me that sounds like the discourse in, in environmental governance about adaptive management, adaptive governance, that half, yeah. of, half the point of everything we do is so that we can learn to do the next thing. Oh, yeah. As opposed yeah. to like well, have everything pristine. Right, right. And so one of the things that, and I don't know for sure if, there, this, if there's any truth to this, but one thing that I have wondered about since getting into the startup world is whether, do you remember when healthcare.gov was launched by the Obama administration? And they just got lambasted because it was not functioning well. Like there's all this stuff that was wrong with it. And what I wonder though, is whether that was effectively the administration sort of following the instincts or the the recommendations of the um of the startup world of the tech sector hmm. where they just float stuff out there and sort of see they use actual users to refine the platform and make it work and like right. i said I, I know that the obama administration maybe more than any previous administrations leaned pretty heavily on the tech world um, you know, mm -hmm. with some of the people that headed up stuff like that. So it wouldn't surprise me if there was this idea that we're just going to push this thing out there and f sort of 
build the plane on the way down, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and there's, so there's some real value to that. And I think corporations to some extent get away with that a lot. I mean, I think when Apple maps launched too, I suspect that they were sort of like, this is good enough. We're going to let users tell us what's working and what's not working. Right. Which is and, maybe easier once you have a brand that you can fall back on. Although, sure. hmm. Yeah. Well, and there, I, to me, that's a hard thing too, because to some extent, you know, in my case where I have a semi-limited audience, you know, I'm trying to work with cities and if mm-hmm. I get a terrible reputation with cities for having this like half-assed product, uh, it could be pretty quick that cities are like, yeah, we're not going to deal with her. You know, right. she just doesn't have anything to offer. Right. So to me, you know, that can be overdone and backfire. Um, and I think, you know, there's cases too, where you see, um, I'm trying to think of the company, man, there was some company where the CEO just kind of went down in flames for having uh, oversold what they could do. But to me, I wish I could remember the name of the company. It was something in healthcare, but. Um, oh, Theranos. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just totally went down in flames. But I think like that's a case where somebody took to the extreme this idea of faking it till you make it. Yeah. And that's like faking it until you keep faking it. Yes. Yes. And there was never a make it point for that person. But I feel like that's the danger of that psychology is that you stop being able to discern when it's too far. Right. It just becomes a game of, of showmanship. Totally. And and that is now the game you're playing. It's not actually create a, like a a useful product. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think to some extent, and I feel like the tech world and venture capital world, they're sort of coming to terms with that a little bit now, realizing Mm. that they have rewarded showmanship rather than value. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, that is a traditional critique of like the private sector and of technologies that people assume that, Oh, if we can do it, then we should do it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And you don't actually stop and think, well, do we need this? Is this going to, what impact does this have on society? It's like not, it's not seen as part of the responsibility of the private sector. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the question, if you're, if you're on that sort of competitive cutthroat side of, of, you know, the business world, all that matters is whether someone will give you money. Right. That is the moral universe. That's the moral universe. And that is, again, I mean, I think Facebook is just so, it is so perfectly demonstrating what happens when you just don't think through the public, the worldwide implications of what you're doing. Yeah. And I still don't know that they're fully engaging on that, but I, mean, I think- based what I've heard, they're not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Leadership is not. I think the- yeah. uh, yes. I think it sounds like, you know, from what little I've read, it sounds like their employees are starting to say this is unacceptable. Um, the one plug I will make is um, the Center for Humane Technology. If somebody hmm. wants to really dive in on how social media can be abused and how technology can be abused, the Center for Humane Technology has an amazing podcast that's called Your Undivided Attention. Uh, it, will, it will scare the pants off you. Okay. Uh, the next time I want that to happen, I'll take a listen. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. All right. All right. Um, 
Okay, so you've been doing Rent Lab for about a year or two since you moved to Tucson? Yeah, I mean, I really, it, like I said, it, it started as a city project. So that started, mm. you know, it, this, it's been a five years or so. But, okay. you know, the, I don't really count the time at the city. Of Bloomington. Which was an incredibly valuable learning time, you know, as part of this. I had, Rent Lab was part of 20 other projects that were on my plate and I just never really had time to dedicate to it. So okay. I really, yeah, Rent Lab's been around for coming up on three years as an okay. actual corporation. So thinking back to your time in Bloomington, the seven and a half years you were the sustainability director for the city. I mean, that was a new position. And my understanding is that there's, there is somewhat of a nationwide trend for that to become an actual position at municipal levels. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So the one of the organizations I belong to while, when I was in that position is called the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. Mm -hmm. And so Bloomington was maybe I don't know, midway through the trend, you know, there were lots of cities that had sustainability director type positions starting, you know, 10 to 12 years ago. I feel like since sort of the late 2000 aughts, um, there's been cities who've had that type of position. And so Bloomington, you know, I started in 2010. So kind of early on in that period. And so now it's, I would say it's super common uh, mm. that the urban sustainability directors network has 250 members or something like that. And that's wow. not every city that has a position like that. It's, but it, you know, it's a trend that keeps growing and growing. Yeah. I imagine a lot of those folks are pretty busy these days. You know, it's been, I think it's been really hard. What, you know, one of the, the challenges in the sector, I think is that the, Jackie, you're touching your desk for, again, by the way. What's that? You're touching your desk again, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just know that if I don't say anything, I'm going to have to go back and edit it later. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I was fidgeting. Yeah, I've, yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so what I was going to say was the, the sort of main concepts of sustainability and resilience, which are the the big philosophies behind why those positions exist mm -hmm. don't always get translated into the day-to-day -day functions of that person. So most cities, and I, I don't say that across the board, but most cities want the position, get the value of the position, but don't really want to incorporate those broad concepts into the way they run the city overall. Mm -hmm. So these resilient, even though the vision of resilience and sustainability is huge and should be impacting the operations of the city overall, in practice, and this was true for me too, because many of those positions don't have a lot of buy-in at leadership for the scale of things, you know, that really, they really should be dealing with. Like, so they end up doing these small things that maybe nudge you in the direction of resilience and sustainability, but don't comprehensively get you there. In the case of the pandemic, where all of a sudden city budgets are being cut, cities are not sure how much staff they're gonna be keeping. When they look at those sustainability positions, they feel more expendable than they should. And, and, and that is not across the board. There are absolutely cities who have taken the 
sustainability framework to heart. Uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, for example, reorganized their whole city structure around economic, environmental, and social equity sort of um, pillars. There's cities that are really, really incorporating it in a super meaningful way, but most cities are to some extent relegating those, those positions to stuff that feels good but may not necessarily deal with core issues. So when you get to the pandemic and they're suddenly cutting budgets, potentially cutting staff, you look at the sustainability office and it feels in practice like window dressing. And so I think many of my colleagues across the country are actually being either, their offices are being cut at, at least temporarily, some of them are being sort of pushed into other functions. And some of it's emergency management and er emergency prep, so it's not totally out of line with some of the things they do. But, you know, so I, you know, sadly, I think for a lot of people, it's not translating the, the sort of core concepts of their positions is not being tapped the way it should right now, even though it's like at the, at the absolute core of what they are there for. Do you still keep in touch with folks like I in do. the network? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's quite a few people that I'm, you know, good friends with and keep in regular touch with. And I'm with some of them, you know, I'm, I'm reaching out to them periodically to kind of get, insight and advice on what we're doing with rent lab because many of those people are also my my potential clients but i also kind of hear through the grapevine the different things that are happening in the network um and you know so i'm still my focus is really trying to create something that actually helps them and so i want to you know be in touch with what they're challenges are and what they're thinking about. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's occurred to me, I mean, honestly, part of the reason I asked is because I'd like to make this podcast more practitioner oriented. So I'm also yeah. just, I'm thinking about other folks that'd be fun to talk to. Um, oh yeah. Oh, I have so absolutely have suggestions. Okay. We can follow yeah. up on that later. We can have a little yeah, yeah. urban Let sustainability planning series or something. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. Let me, and I'll think about that. I mean, is your your overall philosophy with this podcast is, I guess, tell me what your sort of broad directive is. Now that we've had the, almost the whole interview, I'll tell you about like what we're actually trying to do with the podcast. <laughs> I know. I mean, I know. so, yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, I would say it's still developing. I mean, it's run by now three academics. Um, and so I think that you just see, the, the focus is to build community and to share ideas in a medium that's more accessible than another, as I always like to say now, another PDF. Because no one, the problem in academia is that people, everyone's writing, not very many people are reading yeah. all that much because we all have to be writing because no one else is reading our stuff because they have to be writing. Yeah. That's a huge problem. Yes, it is. Um, and so for me, it was a it's way one to, of the reasons, by the way, I left academics. Like, I mean, I was never meant to be an academic, but it's one of the reasons I couldn't take it. <laughs> it's I, I mean, I chafe at it. It's, um, I mean, I've been in this like thing now for 15 years and there's still to me, healthfully a part of me that feels like I, I can't fully endorse the values that are around me. 
and the productivist nature of the publishing environment is one of the big ones where we all just want to crank and get our Google scholar profiles looking spiffy. And it's just, yeah. And I think in my field, we do better with um, like community engagement. Like we, we take that idea seriously and a lot of people do field work and we worry about like parachute extractive research where we come in and get data and then don't talk to the community anymore. Like we take those ideas seriously, but our professional identities and reputations are still, based I think excessively on these metrics. Absolutely. Um, and it's similar to what you were talking about, right? That is our value proposition, but we don't as often think as we could maybe about like, what is the public value? And that's, you know, that could get me in some hot water in academic circles because there are some important arguments about just the, say the public value of basic science, et cetera. But I would say it doesn't hurt us to at least talk about these things. Yeah. And be willing to be more self-critical than I think we are. And I think that's reinforced by everything that's happening now. Um, a lot of us, I think, are challenged by just how relevant our work is or isn't. But so, um, yeah, you asked me about the podcast. So for me, honestly, it's been a way to feel connected with people again. Like, I, I don't do field work as much as I used to. And when I do, I'm not doing nearly as many, like, in-person interviews. I'm not connecting with people as much. And so it just felt like something that would feel really fulfilling to me mm-hmm. and a way to kind of start learning from people again about what's happening. Um, and so most of the interviews have been with academics about their work, about their ideas. Right. But I'm, I'll say in the long run, that's not where I'd like it to stay. I think it'd be nice if it was a mix of more academic and more practitioner-based long-form interviews. We do long-form interviews because they're fun and because they're – you know, they lessen the editing burden. Um, yeah. You know, it's going to take me two hours to edit our interview, but that's nothing compared to, right, like creating some kind of Planet Money episode. Yes, absolutely. Because there's only three of us, and it's not any of our job to actually do this. Right, right. I mean, I love the concept. And I asked more because, you know, having worked at the workshop for many years and now having been in government, trans- or nonprofit, academics, and the private sector, I, you know, want to, I think sometimes about the theoretical work I was exposed to at the workshop and whether that impacts me. And, and I mean, I think I came into the workshop with a sort of basic unarticulated understanding of what the workshop was doing anyway. Yeah. And so to me, it hasn't changed so much the way I operate in the world, even though maybe I now have words for those things. Right. Um, but I think, you know, the, the basic concepts of, I, you know, it is interesting to me because I feel like there's, there's, there are these sort of epiphanies that happen in the academic world that when you share them with the, re- the rest of the world, people are like, well, yeah. So the insights that uh, you know, community, guilty. a community can act collectively to protect its own resources. I mean, I realized that was absolutely, you know, that's such a, core part of what what Lynn Ostrom contributed but you know to talk to the communities that succeeded in that they would say well yeah we did of course we did you know we just have done it that way and so and it was it was helpful from a broader sort of policy making perspective and academic perspective to have somebody say you know the data actually this the experience in the world backs up that people can act 
collect act collectively that the tragedy of the commons is not the the be all end all and maybe yeah. we need to be reminded of that right now because my god it doesn't feel like it i mean i agree i mean i think the the the, the rhetoric that was introduced by lynn's work and others was important i you know i mean i think more academics probably believe that feel this way than would admit that like a lot of the work that you see is kind of like well an emotionally intelligent adult won't be surprised by this because right. they kind of they, and it's because they know it mm -hmm. right um, and i think that's i think it's a real challenge i feel like there's a real problem in academia with not closing the loop of taking all of that great work that's being done and the findings and the insights and iterating by bringing it into a policy setting or bringing it into a community setting or you know whatever your your context is and sort of seeking and it, maybe this goes back to that that startup mentality of validating your premise validating your finding and using that to sort of build on the work how do you actually take it from those findings and those insights that you developed to something that actually improves whatever that real world outcome is. And I think that's the piece of the loop that academics largely doesn't deliver on. I agree. Because, and I know you get it, I'm not saying this because I don't think you know this, but there's a, we're missing a connection in the cycle. Uh, because we value, the, I remember having this conversation, one of the big grants I did with Lynn and a, and a big team while I was at the workshop, uh, you know, there was this section where we had to say what the outcomes were. And I, and, you know, I said, well, what, what's going to go there? And one of the first things Lynn says, well, we're going to write 10 papers and we're going to do this. And I'm like, it's not an outcome. A paper is not an outcome. It's right. not, you just have to, if that's as far as you think you're missing some really important you're missing some really important steps in your work yeah like you're missing a lot of the value we should be trying to produce yeah yeah and you're absolutely right there is this balance between also respecting and understanding basic science or you know this work that doesn't have an immediate real world impact you know there's value there too and i'm perhaps not the person to articulate how that what exactly that looks like but what i do know is that in these fields where there's a practical application we're not requiring or not um rewarding people for actually making that real real world impact no i think that's right i mean broader impacts is you know um national science foundation requires that you write about broader impacts but i think it's still universally understood that broader impacts are not valued as much as things that are more associated with intellectual prestige yeah. when it comes to hiring, promotion, um, making your reputation, et cetera. Totally. Yeah. Yep. yep. So it's really tricky, but this is where too, I feel like the, you know, all these different sectors, private sector, academic sector, government sector, you know, we can all learn from each other. And I, and I, that's universal. Like, I think there's always this concept that the private sector can teach everybody everything, but I think the private sector needs to be on the receiving end too. So, you know, there's these concepts and strategies that are used in different sectors that 
everybody would benefit from. And so yeah. to the extent, you know, and that's maybe where your podcast can, you know, help make some of these ideas more accessible because I know back to the discussion about practitioners and, and the people, you know, people I work with in cities do not have time to sit down and read papers and figure out what the most, they don't have the time to figure out whether your research is valid or whether your claims make sense you know, to some extent, they're using research to, I mean, to, to some extent, they're using it to support projects and programs that maybe they already know they want to do. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's something extent, that humans do. Yeah, and, and so there's that, and that's, a, that's a, another issue. This is, again, you know, something that potentially could be solved by some of the, val you know, the, trying to validate ideas before you sort of take them to their full extent or build them out completely mm -hmm. um so that's a you know a problem that that government has to address but this is you know having an iterative sort of communication strategy between the practitioners the people working for cities or whatever the context is um working directly with the academics in the field would could be incredibly valuable Moving forward, is there anything you'd like to, to add about next steps you want to take with Front Lab, other related activities, challenges that you think that we haven't talked about that are, that are related to things we've talked about that you'd like to mention? Yeah, you know, given all of the, the sort of disruption in the world right now, it absolutely has sidelined the plan I thought I had for going forward. So mm -hmm. the next... When the pandemic started, I sort of said to myself, we're going to take six months to kind of retool what we're building, you know, rethink what our timelines and offerings and all that kind of stuff is. And so we're honestly in the middle of trying to figure out what that, what that next step looks like. But in my mind, there's a path forward where we are still very directly serving cities and trying to set them up to deal with some of these challenges going into the future. Mm. And there's a path where, you know, cities may not be the right target right now because they are too disrupted to, to think about a lot of these things. You know, cities are so constantly required to deal with immediate needs that it's really, really hard to put resources into long-term needs, which is kind of where we live. Right, that's the whole challenge. Um, so there's a scenario where, you know, we actually start looking at serving and addressing con challenges in the rental sector in another way. And that could even be working through the sort of private commercial real estate side of things. Mm. But that's not where my heart lives. So mm -hmm. I don't know that that's the direction. But I, you know, I think just like everybody else, it's just incumbent on me and my team to figure out how we can respond to some of the vulnerabilities and issues that have been laid so bare by what's happening in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, I think there's different course corrections that need to be happening at different scales. So we all need to think about how we participate in those. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is part of a larger project known as the Environmental Social Science Network. You can find us at essnetwork.net. There you'll find information about the podcast and other projects that we're working on, and you can contact us with any ideas about any of these projects. 
If you have an idea for who would be a good guest for the show, or you think you'd be a good guest for the show yourself, or if you just want to get involved in some other way, don't hesitate to reach out. 